It's become clear throughout the COVID-19 pandemic that the lungs are far from the only organ ravaged by this disease. The heart, like many others, is deeply affected by the virus. And now that a series of autopsies have pinpointed the cardiac changes that occur, today we're going to be exploring those changes and how they're different from what anyone might have expected. For ReachMD, this is Heart Matters, and I'm Dr. Alan Brown. Joining me today is Dr. Richard Vanderheide, Professor and Director of Pathology Research at LSU Health New Orleans School of Medicine, who led a team of pathologists that performed autopsies on COVID-19 patients. Dr. Vanderheide, thank you so much for joining the program today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So I'm fascinated by your research, so we might as well jump right into the discussion. Can you share with us what you expected when you first set out to do autopsies on your first COVID-19 patient? Sure. Well, that's actually a great question because that's how I really got interested in this in the first place because when the pandemic first hit, people were wondering exactly what was going to happen in terms of which organs are going to be affected. So I did a little bit of reading and it turned out that some of the earlier studies that came from China had indicated that there was fulminant myocarditis present in 7% of the patients that they had seen in China. So knowing that, I thought, well, certainly myocarditis is is a big concern for patients in the U.S. as well. So when we started these autopsies, we were very interested and expected actually to see at least some degree of what we call myocarditis. So we heard that same discussion that there was a lot of myocarditis going on. So what did you actually see that led you to conduct this study? Well, it's interesting. We were fortunate because here in New Orleans, we have a brand new hospital. So we jumped in right away knowing that we had the facilities that were able to do it. And so when we first started these autopsies, we noticed the lung changes, which we published earlier. But in that same study that we published in Lancet, we also included 10 hearts that we had also seen with some of those early patients. And what we documented in that particular early publication was that we did not see what was typically associated with myocarditis. And so, of course, we've done several more autopsies. Now we're up to almost 40 autopsies in our series here. And again, we were extending our study, looking again for the presence of myocarditis, as is typically defined. And we have not been able to find anything in an adult patient to date that looks like myocarditis, as defined by the old Dallas criteria, which everybody's familiar with. So can I ask you a little bit about how you designed the study. Were there clinical cues that suggested myocarditis to the clinician, or were these autopsies on patients with COVID in general? Yeah, that's a great question. So this is a sequential autopsy study. So we took the first 22 cases that we were able to obtain family permission for the autopsy. And again, it's important to note that these are all patients who died of COVID-19 disease. Yeah, so necessarily having clinical suggestion of myocarditis? Not necessarily, but in some patients, there was certainly concern because a lot of these patients had small bumps in cardiac enzymes, the more sensitive ones are the troponin enzymes. And so there was concern amongst the clinicians whether there was cardiac damage. And of course, they had read the same studies we did. So there was a lot of concern early on with the ICU teams and the pulmonary critical care teams, as well as the cardiologists, whether there was actual cardiac manifestations that were accelerating or contributing to these patients' demise. For those just tuning in, this is Heart Matters on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Richard Vanderheide about his study that found surprising cardiac changes in COVID-19 patients. So, Dr. Vanderheide, then let's jump right over to the results of your study a little bit about what it was designed and then 
what the overall findings were. Yeah, so we took a, a sequential series of 22 autopsies. And what we did is we dissected the heart and submitted routine sections to look at the heart microscopically. But we also went back and looked at all the clinical values that these patients had when they were in the ICU and when they were in the hospital. So we were trying to correlate together some of the laboratory findings is what we were finding with the microscopic findings. So, so what we had found, interestingly, the hearts ranged in size from 340 grams to over a kilogram. So there were some people with significant hypertension, and of course, they had the same comorbidities that everybody reads about. But what was interesting in light of what the concern was with the clinicians regarding presence of cardiac injury and perhaps significant injury was that we didn't really find any significant atherosclerosis, which we defined as a narrowing of greater than 50% in any vessel, that was only present in about five of our 22 patients. And more importantly, we didn't identify any acute coronary thrombi whatsoever. One thing we did find that was interesting was that in several patients, there was a severe right ventricular dilatation, which we defined as the ratio between the right and the left ventricle cavity of greater than one to one. And that was present in nine cases. And that seemed to be associated with a large increase in brain natriuretic peptide, or BNP. So what we hypothesized was that a lot of the cardiac injury that people were probably seeing with the uh, small elevations in troponin was actually related primarily to the pulmonary disease. And so what we think happened was the severe stress on the pulmonary circuit from the underlying pulmonary disease in some patients, as well as obviously the severe diffuse alveolar damage that these patients were suffering, put a lot of stress on the heart, and that stress resulted in dilatation of the right ventricle, as well as accounted for the small bumps in cardiac enzymes that we're seeing in these patients. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, obviously, there's a big focus on the thrombotic characteristics of the disorder now, and the incidence of pulmonary emboli in these patients. I'm sure it goes without saying that you looked for that in the lungs of the patients who had the RV dilation, and I'm assuming that they had RV dilation independent of pulmonary emboli. Yes, exactly. They had that independently of the pulmonary emboli, but as you indicate, virtually all of these patients had some degree of microvessel thrombi present in the lungs. A couple of patients had a large uh, pulmonary embolus, which was the cause of death in that patient, but uh, interestingly, he also had a D-dimer of 45,000, which is extremely elevated. So, we're correlating along with all the other things that we're monitoring currently as our study continues. We're looking at the coagulation parameters from a clinical standpoint and trying to better correlate it with patient outcome as well as what we're seeing in the lungs as well as the heart. Yeah, that's fascinating. So putting together what you found and the lack of finding myocarditis, which certainly all of us have expected was common, what should we take away from the work that you've done and how do you think we ought to use that information to better treat our patients? Well, I think at a more basic level, I've developed a hypothesis related to what we saw in the hearts. More importantly than that, the lack of myocarditis led me to think about different potential basic cellular mechanisms for these cells to die because the stress on the right side indicated the left side was suffering increased stress as well. But that really, in the absence of significant coronary disease, doesn't usually generally cause significant myocyte necrosis. So I looked a little deeper you know, into the literature, and there were some early studies that came out from China that the virus itself actually has a significant propensity to invade endothelial and parasites. So endothelial cells and parasites, uh, which are the cells that are wrapped around the endothelial cells, although only 16% of the cells in the heart seem to be carrying about 70% of the viral load. So reading that, I really started to think about this being primarily a vascular disease. And so what I think is going on 
is that the virus enters through the ACE2 receptors, and they're present in the heart as well as the endothelium. And so I think what's going on is the virus is disseminating through vascular channels, and what that is causing is reaction in the endothelial cells, which at the very small vessel level can lead to increased clotting, which we're seeing in all the other organs. So I think the endothelial involvement leads to some small vessel thrombosis in the heart, probably through platelet thrombosis, which can lead to these small amounts of mastite necrosis and the associated small increase in cardiac enzymes. So I assume that high pulmonary pressures might be part of the reason for the right heart failure as well as the cardiac involvement. So basically what happens is the infection goes to the endothelium and the parasites. And of course, in addition to that, there's also cytokine generation through the infection. So I'm not sure whether it's direct injury from the cytokines, which is causing endothelial dysfunction thrombosis, or whether it's the infection of the virus itself into the endothelium. But whatever it is, I think the combination of the diffuse alveolar damage, which is causing an increase in hypoxia and workload on the right side, coupled with this endothelial dysfunction slash thrombosis, which really was leading to these small individual myocyte necrosis that we're seeing. So though there's lots of studies that suggest that the troponin levels correlate with outcome, I think that in adult patients at least, the uh, small enzyme releases that people are seeing in these patients are related primarily to stress induced by the pulmonary effects on the right side circulation crossing over and causing these stresses on the left side, which in the face of this endothelial infection and or cytokine generation leads to necrosis. Have you looked at patients who present with what looks like an acute coronary syndrome by ECG and enzymes? There have been some publications suggesting that probably the virus leads to plaque rupture and may promote an acute coronary syndrome by that mechanism. So I'm wondering, have you or are you interested in looking at patients who present with ST elevation who have COVID that end up expiring? Yeah, absolutely we are, and that's what we're always looking for. And in fact, the case we did yesterday was exactly the situation. There was a patient who had been diagnosed with COVID in June, had apparently recovered, and then presented with an acute coronary-type presentation. So we're very anxious to find out what we're going to see in his heart. But in addition to that, we've also had a case recently which we published in Annals of Internal Medicine. It was a 31-year-old African-American woman who had also had COVID, recovered, and then presented with an acute cardiac arrest and died. She's 31. You wouldn't expect to have a lot of coronary disease, but we didn't see any kind of an acute arterial thrombosis in her either, even though she presented with what looked to be like an acute coronary event like anybody else would. But what we did see was, again, some of these same vascular changes that we saw with the other patients, but they seemed to be more severe. And so we thought that actually may have been a manifestation of the multi-inflammatory system disorder that has been described more recently in children rather than adults. But I think that was a secondary post-inflammatory response. But I think the heart still can be the primary target of that secondary infection, which is why I think we're seeing all these cardiac findings in kids is that their primary infections might be very minimal or mild. But then when they get another exposure, I think the secondary response seems to be centered on the heart. And it's not so much a coronary thrombosis as it is a vascular swelling and occlusion through that mechanism. We don't have a lot of direct data to support that yet, but we're still working on gathering more to support that hypothesis. I hope we have a chance to speak to you again as those theories continue to be investigated in more detail. So thank you, Dr. Vanderheide, for joining me to talk about these fascinating results. It was great having you on the program. Thank you, Dr. Brown. For ReachMD, I'm Dr. Alan Brown. To access this episode and others from Heart Matters, visit ReachMD.com slash Heart Matters. 
where you can be part of the knowledge. Thanks for listening.